Welcome to Everything Imaginable, a podcast for curious minds on KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochileo. Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. Uh, before we get started, I want to thank all my listeners for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producer Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, senior editor Amanda Steele, author of Ghost of Me, binaural production engineer Damian Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. If you're interested in contributing to the podcast, just go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find a whole bunch of information there on how you can contribute. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Stephen Sacularius. Did I get the name right? Perfect. Wow. <laughs> You're now in a rare a rare club of about two or three. <laughs> <laughs> and um, just a little backstory on how this interview came about is I had done an interview with somebody who wrote uh, a book about the reincarnation of Thomas Jefferson. His name was uh, T.J. Davis. And I had, was promoting it on Facebook. And then Stephen posted underneath saying that um, – that Edgar Allan Poe had stole the poem The Raven from your past life incarnation. And I was like, I have to hear this story. And I invited you on, and here you are. So thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Well, thank you for talking to me, and especially about this topic. So, um, yeah, yeah, this is this is really, really fascinating. Um, so let, let's, uh, let's start from the beginning. Oh man. So, I mean, this is a, this is a deep, I mean, this is like 11 years of research. So it's hard to encapsulate 11 years of research, but uh, first off I started, I found this past life after having produced a documentary on reincarnation. It's called in another life reincarnation in America. And I released it in 2003. It had been five years in the making and two years. Well, first off, I should say that, that as I researched that documentary, I learned about the best cases in the world, the strongest cases, of reincarnation, and I learned the best ways that people had used to uh, prove them and to study them, right? So I had that under my belt. Then two years later, I found this lifetime that I thought was my own, Matthew Franklin Whittier, who was the younger brother of the poet John Greenleaf Whittier back in the 19th century. And uh, there's very little known about him. But I, as soon as I saw his picture, you know, his portrait, I said, man, that's me. I looked into the eyes and I said, I recognize myself. That's me. You know, so that launched about 10, 11 years worth of really intensive research. And I tried very hard to be rigorous. And I tried to apply the methods that I'd learned while I was producing my documentary. Right. Well, Edgar Allan Poe came up fairly early because I had two hypnotic past life regressions only had two or well, one, one more just kind of to scare up some evidence, you know, but the first two were to try to prove it. And I remembered a meeting with Edgar Allan Poe, you know, like we were kind of checking each other out and uh, not quite sure what to make of each other and kind of dancing around and stuff. But I didn't remember anything about sharing any work with him, although probably I would have. And I didn't know where to put that. Um, I also had a couple 
readings with psychic mediums. And one of them said that I would find it if I dug really deeply into the record, it would take a lot of digging, but I would find the answer to it. You know, that was back in 2010. And I started the research around 2009. So much later, several years later, I began to gradually find this evidence that, in fact, Matthew had been the real author of The Raven, and that Edgar Allan Poe, through a, a very tricky uh, little maneuver, had claimed it. And the key to this thing, there's two keys to this thing. And the first one is that I believe, and I do have a master's in counseling, so I have some basis for this. I believe that Edgar Allan Poe was a real sociopath in the clinical sense. That means that he was capable of what I call the big lie. In other words, he was capable, he had, if I can use the expression here, brass balls. He could make outrageous <laughs> lies, right? And, and with a straight face. And the other half of this is that Matthew Franklin Whittier was doing undercover work with the Underground Railroad and the abolitionist movement. And he was not in a position to publicly challenge anybody who was falsely claiming his work. He couldn't publicly challenge them. All he could do is leave these kind of snide comments in code in his other published works, right? Right. So, so that means that Poe could claim this thing and Matthew couldn't do anything about it. His hands were tied, except that he could leave these coded comments for posterity. Well, being that he was my past life incarnation, I've determined that when you reincarnate, you still have the same, what I call a higher mind, the way you're the way your mind works, the creative aspect, the humor, the values, the attitudes, all that's the same. You haven't lost any of that. So, and the intuition. So I was able to figure out and read Matthew's coded references. And the paper that I just recently released on this, I've decoded all of them. And there's 10 or 12 of them. You know, I mean, it's real clear what he's saying. Interesting. So so you were able to decipher your own code from a past life. And when I say code, I don't mean, you know, I don't mean cryptology. Uh -huh. I don't mean that it's, you know, what I mean is references that nobody else would think twice about or that they would know to look for. Okay. And I'm, I can give you some examples of how yeah. that works. Okay. So, so one of the things he would do is he would write under a whole bunch of different pseudonyms. You know, I mean, he was really keeping incognito. But he would write one piece that seemed to be innocuous, you know, didn't seem to be about anything that was really that interesting. I mean, it was interesting, but it was just entertaining, maybe. And then he would put something directly above it or directly below it or directly next to it. And it might be one of his, like a poem, or it might be somebody else's poem that he really liked. And the poem would tell you what the main piece was really about. Or it would be a quote or it would be another article. And you have to look at the two of them together. And the one would tell you what the other one was about. Another technique he had was he would open things with a quote or he would use a quote in line in the piece. And the quote would just seem like it fit with the obvious meaning. But if you look up the quote, and this required scholarship back in the day, because I, I could do it with the internet, but back then they didn't have that. So if you look up the quote and look at the stanza before the part that's quoted or the stanza afterwards or the paragraph before the paragraph afterwards that would tell you what it was really about 
That's an mm. example. Yeah. So th things of that nature, or he would, or sometimes, you know, there's a story, I don't know if it's apocryphal or true, but there's a story about Winston Churchill that people would hand him babies to kiss, right? As a politician. Well, somebody <laughs> handed him the ugliest baby that you could imagine. And he said, he, he recovered himself quickly and said, that's some baby. <laughs> <laughs> which is like neither positive nor negative it's neutral right it right. sounds good so matthew would use that technique he would say something that sounded neutral but mm -hmm. it really wasn't like i mean there's there's a bunch of examples of that too so i mean all of these techniques he used and, and by the time we get to 10 or 12 of these things it's pretty obvious that i'm not just making it up that he really was trying to tell posterity i wrote this poem and poe falsely claimed it okay so, so first of all, <clears throat> tell me a little bit about how you identified your identity in the past life through the regressions. Well, it wasn't really through the regressions, like I said. What okay. happened was, what happened was that I had had a psychic reading many years earlier, in which the woman said, "Oh, you were a." A writer, a female writer on the West Coast around the 1920s or 1930s, and you wrote serials, which became fairly popular, you know, and I was just kind of trying to find that person. So I would be looking online for the names of female writers, and I couldn't find anybody, but I found one name that rang a bell. Now, whether I had studied this person in, you know, English 101 or, or not, I mean, I, I wasn't an English major. This is Sarah Orne Jewett. Now, up here where I am now in Portland, Maine, in, in New England, people know who Sarah Orne Jewett was. She was one of the uh, writers of the kind of second half of the 19th century. Um, but go anywhere else in the country and they're like, who's that? You know, so I don't know whether I'd ever heard of her or not, but that name rang a bell. So I looked her up and when I looked her up, I couldn't find anything. I said, this feels really familiar, but I, I can't find I wasn't her. You know, I don't know this. Besides, she's the wrong era. She's the 1800s and she's on in Boston. And I'm like, I don't know. So I sent the link to a fellow who was in my documentary named Jeff Keen. I don't know if any of your listeners have run across Jeff Keen. He has his own reincarnation case mm -hmm. from the Civil War. So I got to know him because I interviewed him for my documentary. So I sent I sent the link to Jeff about a month or so after all of this happened. And about a half hour later, he sent back a link to me from the interior of this website for Sarah Orange Jewett. And he says, I bet you this is you said I felt led right to it, you know. And the reason I sent this to him is that he displayed the ability to make synchronistic events happen around him. There were several synchronistic things that happened when I was filming him. Right? So he send, sends back this link and I look at it and it's uh, part of the people that she was connected with. <clears throat> excuse me. And uh, there's Matthew Franklin Whittier, the younger brother of John Greenleaf Whittier. It says that he's an author and doesn't say anything else about him. And I look into the eyes and I say, that's me. So that's how the right. whole thing started. So then I said, well, I want to prove this. And one of the ways that people have successfully proved past life cases is through hypnotic regression. So I had a friend who was a therapist who could do past life regressions, wasn't her main thing. And I traded out with her. I did the background music for a self-help CD for the Monroe Institute, you know. And mm -hmm. um, so I, I just kind of knew my way around GarageBand on the Mac well enough to do that. So I did that for her. And she gave me these two regression sessions. And I came up with a few memories. I didn't go deeply under. I wasn't one of these really good subjects that just gets completely zonked out and doesn't even remember, you know, not, not like that. I was completely conscious I had the full choice as to whether to follow any suggestions or not. And I, I had the choice to say, 
only what I really experienced and not anything that, you know, I thought was imagination. So there was a few statements I made that could be checked, you know, under hypnosis. And so I, I checked them in what I call a deep historical record and they checked out. What you know? were they? Well, the strongest one, it takes going to take a minute to explain this, but it was, I was in an open area, which I already decided was probably Portland, Maine, because I knew that Matthew Franklin Whittier had lived in Portland, Maine, where I am now. And it was a big open area. I figured it was one of the town squares. And there was men milling around. Nobody was standing still paying attention to anything. They were milling around in this open area with top hats and black coats. And there were no men and children that I can remember. And off in the distance was a farm wagon that had been set up like an impromptu uh, stage. And a man was up there trying to give a speech with a megaphone, you know, and obviously not a powered one, but yeah. with a megaphone. And you couldn't really hear him because he was too far away. <clears throat> and they weren't really paying attention to him, most of the people. And then I had a strong feeling and a strong thought. And this was typical when I'd have a flashback like this, even with uh, some of them were not under hypnosis, but this was an example of one that was. And the feeling was, <clears throat> um, I mean, I try, I get, I get these confused, but oh, what, uh, Oh, well, we'll see about that was the feeling, just cynicism, right? Mm -hmm. And the thought, the thought was that something was going on in a distant place. Something was going down that was really important, that was going to change everything, but it wasn't an immediate threat to me where I was. That was the thought, right? So I, I don't know. I thought maybe it was the Emancipation Proclamation, you know, which doesn't fit because I'll, I'll tell you why in a minute. That didn't fit. I didn't know what it was. But it was real clear. I can even see it now as I'm talking to you. I can still remember this thing in my mind's eye. So um, maybe a year later, I found a picture of what was then called Congress Square. It's now Congress Square Park in Portland, Maine. And I said, that's it, because I recognized the background. Well, it happened. so happens that two of the buildings that are in the background in that picture were there at the time. Okay. So I said, I know, I know where it is. And then maybe a year or two or three later, I was reading a history of Portland, Maine, and it said the great citywide, the citywide meeting, it said, I said, oh, that's interesting, that could be relevant, and it gave a date, which was January 26th, 1861. Now, I don't know anything about the Civil War, but I, I looked it up by the date, and that was the date that the South threatened to secede from the Union. And it so happens that in Portland, Maine, there was something they called the Great Union Meeting, where the entire city of voters was invited to the city hall. That's men, because women couldn't vote. And the city hall held 2,500 people. The articles about it said that the meeting was filled to overflowing because there was at least 5,000 you know, voting men in the city. So it was at least double the capacity. Those men would have spilled out into the two town squares. Mm -hmm. And it was typical in those town squares for people to give uh, stump speeches. So that was typical. Um, the meeting was stacked with conservatives, according to the liberal newspaper that Matthew wrote for. That means that the liberals would have been in the town square trying to give their own speeches because they weren't allowed in the main meeting. Right. That accounts for the guy up on the makeshift platform giving a speech. But there would have been a lot of conservatives in the crowd as well, which is why nobody was listening to him. <laughs> you know. <And laughs> so the whole thing and I mean, the thought and feeling are perfect, you know. Because Matthew was a radical. See, he was an, an abolitionist. And not only was an abolitionist, he was 
affiliated with William Lloyd Garrison, whose motto was no union with slaveholders, which means he was a disunionist, which means that he wanted the South to leave. (laughs) (laughs) So he was a radical. And these and the conservatives in the city hall, according to the newspaper accounts, were begging the South to stay. We'll do anything you want. You know, any any kind of conciliations that you want us to make, we'll do if you'll just stay in the union. And Matthew, the radical who would just assume that they left, is saying to himself, you know, well, we'll see about that. Hmm. Right. And the thought that I had was absolutely perfect, which is to say there's something going on in a distant place that's going to change everything. It's a big game changer, but it's not an immediate threat to us where we are. So everything hit on every single point. And there's about five or six points. And I had no possible way of knowing any of this stuff before. I mean, I knew that men wore top hats. I guess I knew that, you know, a certain things I knew, like women didn't vote and stuff. But I mean, I had no way of knowing that the great union meeting took place on that date, you know, in Portland. Right. Right. So it's incredible. It fit on everything. And that was one of about I would say there's not that many like. Dr. Ian Stevenson, who studied children who can remember their past lives. uh, One of his stronger cases has 30 hits, you know. And there's one that I like to mention that when I interviewed his successor, Dr. Tucker, in 2007, he told me about a case where a little girl accurately remembered 25 first names from her past life. (laughs) So that tells us it is possible. Mm. The the whole argument of is this possible and is this real is out the window with that one case. Right. So I didn't have like 30. I had maybe four or five that were that strong. Mm -hmm. And the rest of them were pretty strong. You know what I'm saying? On a scale of one to 10, they were maybe eights or, you know, in terms in terms of being able to prove them. But there were four or five that are absolute proof, which is enough to establish that it's a real case. Okay. And um, so so how did you can so so how did this connect with uh, Matthew? Well, I mean, Matthew was the one having those experiences. So so so, so he was he. Is there any evidence that he was there at that location at that time? But there's he was in Portland. Right, he was just in Portland. And, yeah, and and any any man, a voter in Portland, would have been out. <laughs> so that much I can say. But I cannot say that he was at Congress Square and was not in the meeting. What I can say is that he wrote a satirical article on it right. for the for the liberal paper afterwards. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so that, that is good evidence. That's, that's that's what I was kind of wondering if he was there to write something. Um, yeah, hmm. yeah, he did. Yeah, so he there was this character, and this is a this is his one known historically known character, Ethan Spike. So Ethan Spike lived in this very conservative town of Hornby in Oxford County, north of Portland, which is still conservative. And he wrote as this character as a lampoon. See, well, he had written one previously, which. Uh, it said, I think it said that they were they were seceding from the union. You know, Hornby was seceding from the union. But then after this meeting, he wrote again and he says, uh, never mind. If they're going to be so nice to the South, we, we won't secede after all. You know? <laughs> so very, very sarcastic. He was uh, he was I consider him as sort of like the 19th century Lee Camp. Mm-hmm. You know, he was really radical. Yeah. It's interesting. I've never read his, read him, but now I'm probably going to like. I'm a big fan of like Kurt Vonnegut, like that kind of stuff. So yeah, Lee Camp is pretty pretty outrageous. Yeah, I, I like him. I, I mean, I don't agree with him about everything, but you know, I, as a past life satirist, I have to admire his work. <laughs> so now, where does 
Edgar Allan Poe come into the picture. I mean, he was from, I mean, I, mean, I know he was from Boston, but he, well, he lived in Boston, but he was from uh, Virginia. Virginia, yeah. Yeah, yeah, from Virginia originally. And he really didn't, I think he kind of had a very testy relationship with the Frog Pondians, as he called the Bostonians. Because <laughs> uh, they had a frog pond, so he would derisively call them the Frog Pondians. Um, it, it, we have to go back to sixth grade. In my sixth, I'm pretty sure it was sixth grade because I remember it. In the sixth grade class, the teacher introduced the Raven. And I tried to start reading it and I couldn't because I had overwhelming feelings of grief for a lost beloved. You know, I, I couldn't read it. It was just overwhelming. And I mean, to me, that was, I didn't know. I don't know how to explain it. I'd been raised an atheist, you know, so I couldn't explain it. But I always knew there was somebody I had lost, right? So uh, it was very strong and I, and I had to put it down. I couldn't read the whole thing. So that's kind of odd for like a 12 year old boy, you know, 11 or 12 year old mm -hmm. boy, because most people even now take it as a horror poem, like science fiction. So a 12 year old boy, normally if he had any interest at all, he would think, oh, that's cool. That's like a horror story, you know? That wasn't my reaction at all. So that's there and we had to have to leave that as one little interesting piece of evidence. And there are things from my childhood that tie into this, that's one of them. I haven't emphasized them in my studies, but they're there as one would expect them to be. So then in that past life progression, I suddenly, for no reason, there wasn't anything that led up to it. I suddenly remembered Edgar Allan Poe getting in contact with me. And what I remembered was he was kind of feeling me out to be a political ghostwriter. I did find that Matthew did ghostwriting. It was I was publishing during that time. So Poe could have seen something that I wrote and tracked me down. Um, but there's no evidence that Matthew ever did ghostwriting. I think it could have been just an excuse because here's what, from studying Edgar Allan Poe's legacy, here's what I think he did. I think that he would find widowers who were not literary figures, but when people are in deep grief, just like when they're in love, they tend to write poetry. And sometimes it can be pretty good, but the thing is it's not published they're not known and they're not likely, if they even find out about it, they're not likely to try to do anything about it. So they're ripe for the picking. Those were his victims. So he would find weaving, grieving, excuse me, not weaving, grieving widowers and steal their poetry and maybe modify it a little bit and publish it as his own. Well, that's probably what he was doing with Matthew because he had learned that Matthew had lost his wife. And so he pretended, I think, that he wanted Matthew to do ghostwriting for him. And then he got Matthew to share this poetry with him, not just the Raven, but also Annabelle Lee, which was one of Matthew's written to his late wife and the story, some words with a mummy and possibly some other things. But those three were Matthew's and uh, he published them on his own. But the, the way he published The Raven, he did it at the last minute when he realized that Matthew was publishing it himself. So mm. that's kind of an interesting little story there as to how that went down. Oh, ha, ha, what evidence is there that, that Matthew was going to publish the poem on his own? A bunch. And here's where we get into the code and things. Okay. So, so first of all, that poem was first published in a new literary magazine in new york called american review and it was published in the second edition of american review um then edgar Allan poe managed to sneak it into his little daily newspaper the evening mayor two days before 
the February edition of American Review came out. So he scooped it by like two days in the paper that he wrote as a critic for. And in the one that appeared in American Review, it was signed blank Quarles, which everybody pretty much agrees is a reference to a British poet of the previous century, I think it was 1700s, named Francis Quarles, uh, who was a deeply religious, very austere, devotional poet. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind that Poe was a sociopath. <laughs> he would have had no interest whatsoever in Francis Quarles. Um, but Poe's version, which he modified a little bit, and that's significant because he made some changes that are telling, he modified it a little bit and published it in the paper that he worked for, the New York Evening Mirror, two days before, January 29, 1845. Um, I can show that Matthew was in New York as a writer. Um, and they actually, their buildings were not too far apart. And uh, Edgar Allan Poe left that paper right after or very soon after that poem was published. He said that he had permission to scoop American Review. But it's totally nonsensical because a brand new monthly literary journal is not going to let a little daily rag scoop it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so what what I think happened was that Poe lied and said that he had permission and the edit editor of the Evening Mayor dutifully put as the introduction that they had permission. And then he gets a note from or a letter or a visit from the editor of American Review says, I didn't give permission for that. And the whole thing is absurd. Nobody in that era, no literary journal would ever give permission for a little daily paper to scoop it like that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's crazy. So I think that he got fired. I think the editor said, you lied to me. That's it. You're you're out. You know, um, and there's more, you know, there's more to that. But it's it's pretty clear to me anyway. That's the way it went down. But then there's all the clues and the code. And uh, let's go through those. What are the what are these clues? I wish I had it in front of me. I kept thinking I probably should, but I didn't. Um, okay, there's a whole bunch. First of all, blank quarrels is not something Poe would have used. It's definitely something Matthew would have used. Now, for this, we have to go to something that is another dispute all by itself. Matthew Franklin Whittier used a signature, an asterisk, a single star, from way back as early as 1829 and then several times in 1830 and on throughout his entire career for different newspapers up until the latest I found was 1873. So long literary career, he pulled out this star off and on for all these different newspapers. It had a deep significance, I believe, and that is that his first wife, his true love, Abby, Abby Poyan, loved the stars and believed that they were living souls. She wrote a poem about that. But the poems that we have to go to were plagiarized by her classroom teacher, Albert Pike. Have you ever heard of Albert Pike? No. He became, well, he was, he was from Massachusetts, but he became a Civil War general. And then he uh, became a 33, 33rd degree Mason in Boston, a very high level Mason. But he's kind of nefarious. For one thing, he's some people consider that he taught a form of Luciferianism and there's other people that think he was involved in a plot to bring back the Confederacy and, you know, kind of a nefarious character. Uh, he's apparently a favorite of Trump's because when they tore down his statue, Trump was particularly unhappy. 
<laughs> so, mm-hmm. so, so, uh, not to bring politics into this, but um, Matthew used this star very, very early, and he used it in the New York Tribune from the fall of 1844 up until the middle of 1846. But historians have mistakenly attributed that to the transcendentalist Margaret Fuller. She was the literary editor. It was not Margaret Fuller's work. It was Matthew writing as a freelancer with his long accustomed signature of a star. But she would kind of uh, stick her thumb in it, you know, add little things into it without saying that it was her to make him sound like he was saying something else every once in a while, <coughs> which I think is unethical. And then later on, she took it over toward the end. And when she went to Europe as a foreign correspondent, <clears throat> she took it over. But Matthew kept right on using it after mm-hmm. he left the Tribune. See, so so uh, anyway, that was Matthew. Now, as the star, not long at all before the Raven was published, and I don't have the exact. It's like two weeks or a month or something like that. He was writing a review of a poetry compilation from uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, and in it he extolled a poem by Francis Quarles. So as as recently as like a month before The Raven is published, Matthew, as the star, is praising Francis Quarles. So that's one little clue. Um, another one is that I think even sooner, like, like two weeks before The Raven came out, there was a poem that Matthew published in the Tribune with his first initial, M, that is just... I would say, as a non-scholar, is in the same style as the Raven. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a clue. Uh, then you get into things that Matthew wrote afterwards. But the what you have to understand is the background that Poe has no real background for this poem, and we can get into that later on if we want to. But I mean, his his background, his context for this thing is very flimsy. And Poe enthusiasts make a big deal about this, but it's totally, it's very lame, very weak. Matthew had a very, very deep context for this poem. And the first thing to understand is that Matthew wrote from real life. What he, I, I like to say that he would, if it was images, if it was photographs, he would take them into Photoshop and apply the filters and spit them back out. It was basically autobiographical, but right. with little twists so that you couldn't recognize who it was, right? So, the poem, The Raven, is autobiographical for Matthew. It's literal up until the point that the raven comes in the room and starts talking. Everything was literal. And Poe makes a big deal in his philosophy of composition about how he picked the place and how he picked the bust of palace and how he picked this and that. And, you know, well, it, Matthew Franklin Whittier didn't do any of that stuff. It was it was actually what happened. He was up late, which we know, I know that he did for many examples. He was studying esoteric and religious literature, which I know that he did. He probably was studying Abbey's volume of Francis Quarles' poetry. And we know that he had that because he wrote about it in 1831. Under one of his pseudonyms, Franklin Jr., he wrote about Francis Quarles' poetry and mentioned that he had an antiquarian volume, which right. probably had been Abbey's. So we, we know from a couple different places that he, you know, liked Francis Quarles. Um, see, I, I get lost in all of these things, <laughs> you know, but but what it was it was real life. So it was really in the bleak December. It, Abby died in March 27, 1827. Uh, right. Let me see. No, 1841. I'm sorry. March 27, 1841. 
And as of February, he was very deeply grieving and he would have been up late studying her books. And, and she was an esotericist. She was a mystic and she had studied the paranormal and mysticism. So he was studying her books, including Francis Quarles, and he was hoping that she would manifest to him. So this was all literal. Nothing was imagination okay. up to this point. And he was in his study because he was, it wasn't that like Poe said it was a, there was some, something like there was moral weight to have it in a room. Bullshit. You know, I hope I can say that online. Um, <laughs> BS. So uh, it was actually what happened. You know, Matthew was up late studying like he very often did in his, you know, study. Mm-hmm. And he really, he probably really did have, there is some evidence that he really did have a bust of palace above his chamber door. Because that, That's pretty deep too. We can go into that, but I don't want to you know get too sidetracked, but he really did have the bust and he really did hear something at the window. And he really did have purple curtains because they'd been Abby's and they were really important to him because they were, you know, something he had left of hers. And it really did turn out to probably be a bird. And then it becomes metaphorical after that. You know, but up to that point, everything was literal, you know, well, it, it all matches up point for point for point for point with Matthew's own life, his own autobiography. So there's there's a clue. Um, there's another one. And that is that when Matthew wrote it, he included a line. It's in the ninth stanza. And it has to do with a sub, sublunary. He uses <clears throat> the word sublunary. Matthew, I have a digitized database of over 2,300 of Matthew Franklin Whittier's works, Mm -hmm. most of which is from newspapers, but not entirely. He used that word 22 times. And uh, it was one of his favorite words, past life memory and intuition, which I take into account. I don't give it too much weight, but I take it into account because I've proven that it can be real. Uh, Tells me that that was a word that he and Abby both liked. They had this little private world with their little private jokes, right? And he would insert these things into his work, especially if he was writing a tribute to her. He would insert them by way of keeping her memory alive, I would say. Okay. And keeping their, you know, he would use their favorite little sayings and jokes. Well, sublunary apparently was one of those that they both liked. So he used it in the poem. Edgar Allan Poe took it out. Edgar Allan Poe, as far as, as far as I could tell, only used sublunary once in his entire career. And that mm. one, I think, was plagiarized. So I don't think he liked that word, you know, but Matthew liked it because it was part of this hidden tribute to Abby. Right. So there's another little clue that's in the poem. I'm trying to think of the ones that are in the poem before I get to the ones where he left messages afterwards, you know. Right. So uh, it's his preferred style. I have examples of two examples of him using it before. There's a third example that comes up with regard to, uh, <laughs> excuse me, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, because she stole four of his poems. This sounds, and already I've got three, <laughs> already I've got three famous people I'm claiming for Matthew, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe and, and uh, Margaret Fuller and Elizabeth Barrett Browning. And there's a fourth with Charles Dickens, which we haven't gotten into. Mm. So it sounds outrageous. What it is, I call Matthew the dark star that was circling the 19th century literary skies. He was as good as any of the best, but he was completely unknown and completely incognito. And he made at least four people famous. His work wow. was so good. So around, ni- around 1842, the year after Abby died, For some reason, Matthew was sending his work out to the literati, the famous writers, not only in America, but in Europe. And we don't know how many people he sent them out to. Probably like he might have sent some of his work to uh, 
Longfellow, and Longfellow would have given him feedback very appropriately, you know, and would never in a million years have thought of using it. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. But there were a few bad apples, see, that had gotten their reputations dishonestly. One of them was Poe, and one of them was Elizabeth Barrett Browning. So he apparently sent four poems to her, one of which was called Lady Geraldine's Courtship. And it is very, very similar. And it's not just my opinion. It's been noted by scholars and observers that it's extremely similar in style to The Raven. And it was written, it was published the year before in 1844. And it has an almost identical line, which I don't have in front of me, but it's an almost identical line concerning purple curtains. The explanation for that is very simple, that, that those curtains represented Abby because they were something he had left of hers. I think he gave almost everything away in a fit of, he was a stoic philosopher. So I think he, when he was in that period of shock when you can't feel anything after you lose somebody mm -hmm. he thought that he was fine he was just a stoic philosopher and he was fine you know so he gave everything away and i have something in a letter from him to his brother where he's sending a box back to her family right but he kept the curtains and so they were all he had left of her so they were so important to him that they show up with an almost identical line in both poems well uh when when edgar Allan poe found this out he had to act fast and what he did when he published his compilation, which was The Raven and Other Poems, he put in a lavish dedication to Elizabeth Barrett Browning, which is all bullshit. The whole thing is completely insincere, but he pretended like he was, she was the most wonderful female poet in the whole world. I forget how it reads now, but it's like that. It's totally overblown and it's all insincere. And he did it to try to trick people into thinking that he'd written that similar line in admiration. It wasn't an admiration. He didn't write that line. And Elizabeth Barrett Browning hadn't written it on her poem either. <laughs> they just happened to be similar because Matthew had used the same damn lines in both poems. So that's another clue. <laughs> and let me get a sip of water. That, that kind of goes for what's in the poem itself. Mm -hmm. There's and more because I can, I can prove that Matthew had a bust of palace and that he associated it with Abby. And that it looked like her. So there's a whole nother avenue of research with regard to that bust of Pallas and why he would have used it. Wow. See, the, the Pallas is Athena. Mm -hmm. And Athena, in, in the tradition of ancient Greece, a statue of Athena stood guard over ancient Troy. And it was called a palladium. So yeah. Matthew used the word, I don't know how many times, but, you know, 10, 12, 20 times he used the word palladium. He loved that word. That was another one like sublunary. Apparently, he saw Abby as being like Athena. So since the bust of Pallas, the one that came from Herculaneum, you know, which is the, the Mount Vesuvius also destroyed Herculaneum. Um, he apparently had that particular bust because it looked like Abby and it symbolized her wisdom because she had been his tutor when she was young. So it all ties in. The backstory is very deep. I can just barely scratch the surface of it now. So Matthew Franklin Whittier has a very, very deep backstory to this poem. Edgar Allan Poe has nothing. He has the philosophy of composition in which he pretends that he put it together in pieces parts, like one would build Legos. You know, I wanted the, I wanted the, the raven to be dark, the contrast with the white of the Buster Palace and that there's moral power and having him inside the room. So I wanted that's all this BS that he puts in this philosophy of composition. And then the other thing that's cited for Poe is that his wife, Virginia, was dying of consumption. And they say that he wrote this poem in they call it anticipatory grief. Well, I have a master's in counseling and there is no such thing. There is no such animal because. 
people who are losing somebody until the last second, they can't imagine being without them. They don't start grieving before the person dies, not really. And this poem was written by somebody who was sincerely in grief. It was not written in imagination. And the other side of that is if, let's imagine that Virginia, uh, Poe's wife, is dying of consumption and he publishes this poem about grieving for her, about her already having died, and she's here trying to fight for her life. How would she have felt? How cruel is that? You know, I mean, I liken that to uh, he's sitting at the table writing out the invitations to the funeral in front uh -huh. of her. Yeah. You know, it's, it's only a sociopath would do such a thing. You understand? So he mm -hmm. couldn't possibly have written this poem in anticipatory grief. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, 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 so there, there's some of the logical inconsistencies. Then you go into the things that the code that Matthew embedded in his works afterwards. And, and what were those? So well, we got, a, we got a ton of these. Um, he, in 1847, 1846 and 47, or just 1847. See, I, again, I don't have the dates in front of me. But he wrote two parodies of Edgar Allan Poe for a humor magazine called Yankee Doodle. This was the first humor magazine, magazine patterned after Britain's Punch. Matthew was heavily involved in it. Of course, his name isn't in it, but I know he was. And he uh, wrote two parodies of Poe. The first was a poem in parody of Poe himself and his poetry. And the gist of it was that uh, Poe is an imitator who spoils other people's work the way that rats and mice spoil the pastry. You know, mm -hmm. that's, that's the gist of the poem. But then he opens it with a quote. And I wish I had that in front of me, but it's in Latin. And I sent it to a friend of mine who's a retired professor and he sent back the translation and it it has to do with the geese and their and their liver being inflated so the ancient romans would force feed geese to fatten their livers mm -hmm. see well that's what the quote is about and the inference is that edgar Allan poe has puffed himself up like a goose with a fattened liver see? <laughs> <laughs> you know i mean matthew again this is lee camp right so he's very sarcastic when you know but it's it's veiled it's all veiled so he's got this poem that's that's enough and on the same page as he typically did is another one of his pieces, which can clearly be identified as his by style. He signed both of them by having that on the same page. That was one of his ways of signing his work. So for posterity, because this was for posterity, when posterity figured out one of his styles or one of his pseudonyms, they would look on the page and find the other one. See? So that was the first one. The second one was a parody of the, of the Raven itself. And it's called the, he actually puts dashes in between the words, like it's too horrible to say, but it's the bed bug. And it's quite well done. And it's about, you know, a bed bug that's torturing him in the middle of the night. So he's basically, you know, uh, comparing Edgar Allan Poe to a bed bug. <laughs> and it's got, it's got little references in it, which if I had in front of me, you know, I can interpret it. So that's one. There's another one. Now, Matthew's Ethan Spike character, the conservative ignoramus, was normally from Hornby, and he wrote that for the Boston Chronotype, which was the radical newspaper uh, in Boston. And uh, but this was, I think, December of 1846. Poe came out with the philosophy of composition a few months earlier, and it must have just come to his attention because he writes about a different town, and he only did this like once or twice. And it's Libbyville, and in Libbyville, it was a little tiny town which had gotten just gotten big enough to be incorporated and all of a sudden people are getting a big head about about it about how important they are and everything you know and he writes about that it's 
a metaphor for Edgar Allan Poe, see, who suddenly thinks he's big stuff. But then he, he, he clenches it because directly underneath it is a poem, and I wish I had this in front of me, darn it. It's a poem by Francis Quarles. And it says that basically you may think you're a moral man, but you ain't no Christian. <laughs> That's the gist of it, right? And it's in direct reference to something Poe said in the philosophy of composition, talking about the moral power of an enclosed space, which nobody who knows anything about morality would ever talk about an enclosed space as having moral power, you know, and it enraged Matthew. So he quoted Francis Quarles talking about morality and saying the worldly man thinks he's moral, but he's, but the Christian is really moral, which translates to, you may think you're moral, but you ain't no Christian. Right. <laughs> you know, you know, that's another, that's another one. And they go on like that. I mean, I don't know if I can remember all of them just sitting here, but I mean, there's, like I said, there's 10, 12, 10, 12 of these things. And the pattern is pretty clear. There's uh, oh my gosh, I do, I do remember some of them. Matthew, here's, here's another mistaken attribution. Matthew wrote as a character named Quails for the Boston Weekly Museum, which ran from mid-1848 to mid-1852. Quails started in the fall of 1849, and this is a travelogue. And apparently, Matthew was a, a postal inspector who traveled the New England states, and he would, it was extremely well-written, and it was, it was attributed to and claimed by an entertainer named Ashen Dodge. Now that's a long story, but I caught Ashen Dodge red-handed. It's not him. I mean, I caught that claim red-handed. Mm -hmm. I can absolutely prove that that's not him. And we can go into that if we, if you want, you know, but that's like a sidetrack. But anyway, definitely Matthew is, 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 uh, is quails. Okay. And, and then he had several other pseudonyms, which also he's less clues in, but quails after Edgar, after Edgar Allan Poe's death, I got to slow down. Quayle says that he has what they now call the Ultima Thule portrait, a copy of it. That's Edgar Allan Poe's last portrait taken when he was kind of on a night on the town or whatever, shortly before he died. And uh, Matthew has a copy. And apparently Matthew loved to go and visit daguerreotype shops and look at the portraits. Well, he was in Boston, he was in Samuel Massery's shop, and he was looking at Poe's portraits, studying it. He had an interest in phrenology, so he was studying the bumps, you know, and looking at his portrait, trying to figure this guy out still. And Samuel Massery must have thought he was a fan and offered to send him a copy. So here, Matthew is going to write to us about this copy. And he writes his regular travelogue, and then he stops and says, you know, now he's going to write about this portrait. And... It sounds favorable. Basically, his take on it, if you, if you read it closely, his take on it is that Poe was a kind of a maverick genius, but he was a sociopath. In other words, he had no respect for anybody's well-being at all except himself, was entirely self-centered. I mean, it's in there. If I had it in front of me, I'd read it. Mm -hmm. um, he also calls the photograph a counterfeit presentment. That is code, the kind when I was talking about Winston Churchill, right. that sounds neutral. It is not. It means that Poe was a phony. <laughs> so when he says his his photograph was a counterfeit presentment, that's meaningful. And he goes on like that again. He says that he had no concern for anybody else and that he would take advantage of a brother's weakness. That's uh, that's a quote from this travelogue, meaning that he had done that with Matthew when Matthew was not in a position to defend a poem. But the clincher and there's other I think there's other things in there that I'm not remembering. The clincher is he 
dated this second portion of it. He dated it on June 2nd. That's Abby's birthday. There's only one reason he would have dated this thing on Abby's birthday, because right. he, he'd used her birthday before and other important dates. It's always code. So he's definitely brought Abby into this, you know, and what he's saying is I wrote the Raven for Abby. This is, this was my tribute mm -hmm. to her, you know? And so that's, a, that's another one. Um, and I mean, there's, there's more that, that, you know, he, he wrote as B, which I think stood for Bertram, who was the main character in Lady Geraldine's courtship, which was plagiarized by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Okay. So one, another, he, he wrote, is get wilder and wilder. He wrote, now, I have listened to people's stories that at some point they go past my boggle threshold and I throw the whole thing out. You know, I know I'm threatening to do that or have already done that with a lot of listeners. But hang in there with me because I've got all the research behind this. I've got, you know, like 11 years worth of evidence behind all of this stuff. So he had several travelogues going because he was an undercover agent for the abolitionist cause reporting, I think, to William Lloyd Garrison. And he used these travelogues to report his contacts. Never to say anything about them, always just to say I was here and I met with such and such, you know, well, so he'd use several different travelogues and he'd kind of mix and match his itinerary in them. If you check them, they, they work out, you know, but he would use some of the places he went to in this travelogue entity and some in this one and so on. And they all had like different identities. So Quails was supposed to be an old man traveling for the government. B was supposed to be this kind of retired poet who now lived in Westbrook, which now I'm in Westbrook, which is now called Portland. I'm sitting mm -hmm. here in that same area. So he lived in a house in Westbrook, right? So he says Poe has just died. And he talks about Poe kind of sympathetically, even though he says that somebody from the New York Tribune has said that he uh, his poetry and his writings breathed the breath of hell or something like that right so matthew says no but there was a, there, there were at least two poems that didn't well he means the raven and annabelle e <laughs> <laughs> you know is the two poems that didn't breathe of hell but anyway b goes on to say that for several reasons which is meaningful that he um he saw poe give a recitation of the Raven in Boston in 1845. Well, that's a matter of historical record. He says, B says that Poe cleared out three quarters of the audience and, and then with unperturbable sangfroid, he says, he asked the man manager, the stage manager, if he could read the Raven. Now, Matthew says that the Raven is that remarkable poem but when he talks about Poe reading it, he says he read it in a in a manner that will never be repeated. <laughs> like the like the some baby, see, mm -hmm. you know, and which means Poe is dead and it'll never be read the same way again because he's <laughs> dead. See, <laughs> So he read it in a, in a manner that will never be repeated. And if you get into the history of it, as I understand it, Poe had taken fifty dollars to read a new poem, to write a new poem and read it for the Frog Pondians, see? And he didn't. He came up and he read one of his old poems, which I'm almost a thousand percent sure was plagiarized back in the early days, Al-Araf. Poe couldn't have written. See, Poe couldn't write his way out of a paper bag. All of the good ones were plagiarized, in my opinion. Hmm. And I can back that up pretty much, which we can go into also. But what he did is he read Al-Araf and he cleared out three quarters of the audience doing that. 
And then finally, he asked permission to read The Raven and the rest of the three quarters, the one quarter stayed for that because that was a famous poem. So, <laughs> so there's, there's that whole thing. There may be more clues in there. That's just what I can remember off the top of my head. So that's B. And gosh, I know that there's more, but you know, it's hard to remember a whole, for me anyway, it's hard to remember a whole list, you know, off the yeah. top of my head, but that kind of gives us a pretty good idea of the kind of code that Matthew was using. The, the other thing is that when he would talk about Poe, he would put pieces on top, like poetry on top and below. So when he wrote about the Ultima Thule portrait, if I'm not mistaken, going from memory, he had a poem on top and a poem below, and they both were relevant. And uh, about Abby, you know, they were basically about Abby. And then one of the other pieces that's related, relevant had Annabelle Lee underneath it, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. so, so he kept doing this over and over. Um, I know the, the, one, the one that he wrote as quails that talks about, um, oh gosh, that talks about, oh no, I can't remember what the one, but anyway, the one with quails had above it a poem. Now I'm getting confused. You may have to see it. Well, if I was doing my blog, I'd cut all this out. Anyway, <laughs> all right. So one of those blog entries, I can't remember one, had above it a poem that he had written years ago about Abby, about grief for her. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's clearly his style, but he signed another one of his plagiarist names to it. <laughs> and that poem was, I'm confusing two different things. <sighs> Let me see. Let me back up now. I'm sorry. I don't have these things in front of me. One of the poems that was on top of one of these travelogue pieces was about forgiveness, but he signed his plagiarist name to it. And it was about forgiving an erring brother. And Matthew was trying to forgive Poe. Hmm. He was trying to turn the other cheek as a Christian. And in the travelogue entry, you can see that he's trying to forgive him. You know, so the poem directly above is about forgiving an erring brother, but he signed it with his plagiarist name as though he's trying to forgive him also. Hmm. You know? so, so it go, it goes on and on like that and and again i apologize for not having these uh -huh. stuff. if i had them all laid out in front of me we'd be good to go so i'm going from memory um i've, I've touched on maybe what six quite, out quite a few uh, enough to have me you get the question, idea. questioning you know yeah not just the raven but probably all of poe's work now, now the, all of these examples are in my article, point for point for point for point, 52 pages. So, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, you can get it there. Was, was any of Poe's work his own? Yes, I think it was. Like Yulalame, for example, which is a horrible knockoff of the Raven style. It's very amateurish, in mm -hmm. my opinion. And when I look at poetry, I don't just look at technical, like whether it rhymes or not. I'm, I'm looking at, does it come out of the soul of the poet? You know, does it express something of his or did he just stick it together because it sounds good? Well, that's what Poe did with this. He just stuck pieces, parts together because he really wasn't a poet. I think that as a sociopath, Edgar Allan Poe didn't care so much about money. And I've had people say, well, how could he be a sociopath? He was so poor. Sociopaths want different things. Some of them want to kill people. Some of them want money. Some of them want fame. He was the kind that wanted fame. Everything he did was geared toward fame. Well, if you wanted to be a member of the literati and you wanted to be famous in literary circles, you had to be able to also write poetry. He couldn't write poetry. 
He didn't have the soul for poetry, so he stole it. And then he imitated it. So some of these things are his imitations. Probably the bells is his. Probably Yulalame is his. I don't know what else. You know, I'm not. What, what I do know is that somebody said, well, you know, have you read post poetry? And I'm like, well, no, I actually haven't studied all of it. And, and the, the gauntlet was thrown. Right. So I had to go back and read every single poem that Edgar Allan Poe had ever published from the beginning, which I think is 1827, <laughs> excuse me, with Tamerlane, all the way up to 1843, which would cover the period when Matthew shared poetry with him. Right. Um, and I looked at them. And it's very uneven, but the styles are all over the place. And what's more important is the, the theology is all over the place. A lot of them are grief poems, but the theology, the understanding of, of metaphysics and the paranormal that comes through these different grief poems, witterer's poems, are conflicting. They don't mesh. So he has one that is clearly spiritualist. You know, and it clearly talks about the soul leaving the body and living in the spirit realm and meeting up with past loved ones and so on. Right. Then, like some three years later, he publishes another one that's all over the bed. Just sounds like it's all just fantasy and made up. And it kind of has the 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 loved wife sleeping in the tomb and the worms are down there and there's ghosts around. And, you know, it's a horror, it's a horror poem. I think he probably wrote that one. But he didn't write the spiritualist one because you can't go from that advanced understanding of spiritualism down three years later to this gobbledygook. <laughs> so he wasn't religious at all. The ones that sincerely look religious were stolen. They have to be, logically. They can't have been written by the same person. Uh, how about his stories? Are his stories his? Well, like one of them is one of them's Matthews, and that's and that's uh, some words with a mummy, mm -hmm. and. Um, it appears, well, I don't have that in front of me, it's the, com the Companion, I think. There's a, there's a magazine that said that it was coming out, that they'd accepted it in the January, oh gosh, uh, 1845 edition, I think it is. And then it doesn't come out. I think that was Matthew's submission. We'll never know because they didn't print it and we don't know uh, what it looked like. But it's, it's very much Matthew's style. Matthew often lampooned quack doctors. That's the, that's the original theme of the story, is quack medicine. It's the, exactly the kind of plot twist and clever idea that Matthew would come up with. There's several examples of that. But it's been heavily edited because it's not really Matthew's language. So like Poe must have very heavily reworked it. So that story he didn't write. There's other ones that I'm not really an expert in these things, but since I know that I would say he plagiarized 90% of his published poems from 1843 up until, um, no, from 1827 up until 1843. And then mostly that was because he really wasn't a poet. The stories, I think he could write horror fiction. You know, I mean, a sociopath would be pretty good at that. Right. You know, so I think he wrote some of them. I do not think he wrote The Gold Bug, and I'll tell you why. Um <sighs> Edgar Allan Poe had written a poem that had code in it, real cryptography in it, um, called The Valentine. And he published it in two different sources. One was Sartain's Magazine, and uh, this is 1849. And one was in The Flag of Our Union. That same day that it came out in The Flag of Our Union, I think it's the 3rd of, anyway, I think it's the 3rd of July or something like that, um, 
Matthew published the answer in the Portland transcript, which is the paper that he normally published in. And he used the pseudonym Polonius, which is a Shakespearean character, not a very mm -hmm. admirable one. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a guy that was just yeah. full of crap, basically. I don't know my Shakespeare, but I looked him up. So, uh, but he, he solved the poem very easily. And he, and it was, a, it, it basically turned out that the, the code is very, very easy. Matthew says he had used it like a year or two before. I looked up that poem and found out that he had actually written that poem years before, but he added some references at the end. And those references were coded references directed at Matthew, I believe. The first one was uh, a warning to give up, which meant Matthew should be giving up trying to get him to admit it. And the second one was to uh, Ferdinand Mendes Pinto, which was a historical Portuguese explorer who was known for bullshitting in his memoirs. Okay, Matthew had used that character some years earlier, like 47, I think it was, in the New York Evening Mirror, the same one that Poe used to work for as a critic. And in 1840, 1851, a couple, three, four years later, Matthew used Pinto again. And he used it that time to try to deal with an imitator in that paper. In other words, if this guy was going to bullshit, Matthew as Pinto would bullshit even more, you know, mm -hmm. about him, you know. So that was Matthew's pseudonym. Well, in the Valentine, at the end, the added on portion that wasn't in the original poem, he mentions Pinto. <laughs> okay. So what appears to be happening here is that there was correspondence going on between Matthew and Edgar Allan Poe, where Matthew said, fess up publicly. And Poe said, I might, I might not. And then Matthew, who wrote several poems as Polonius before this, if you read them, it looks like he's freaking out about, I might suddenly become famous. And it was the last thing he wanted. He was afraid of fame. He'd always mm -hmm. kept himself anonymous. And he's like, what am I going to do if I'm suddenly famous? And he deals with that in the poem. So Polonius had been writing, apparently publishing poetry before this last one. Um, Let's see, there's another piece to this puzzle, and that is that Matthew was good friends with the original editor of the Portland Transcript, who was Charles Parker Isley, who tells us in his two correspondence column that he was an advanced amateur cryptologist. So that means that if Matthew couldn't have figured out post poem, he could very easily have gone to his friend Charles and it would have been a piece of cake for Charles. The point of all this is, at the end, he says, it's, it's very strange that the author of the gold bug could write such amateurish code, you know? Well, I think he wasn't sure. I don't think he quite could grasp the extent to which Poe was lying and the extent to which Poe had, uh, had built up a phony reputation by stealing other people's work. It was massive. And this is the trademark of a sociopath. His, his scams are massive and his lies are massive the big lie, right? Well, Matthew still wasn't sure. He couldn't quite bring himself to believe, you know, that Poe was, was plagiarizing all this stuff. But the inference is pretty clear. He's saying, could he really have been the author of the gold bug if, he put, if this is the kind of code he puts out? You know? <laughs> so, <laughs> so there's another little clue. Now, at the, at the end of this exchange comes, and I wish I had this in front of me, comes a poem by Francis Quarles. Now, we have to assume or take under consideration the assumption that Matthew, with his friend, the editor, I think, I think Charles Isley was the editor still in 49. He turned it over to somebody else in 1850. So Charles Isley 
probably he was in on it. And Matthew had told him as a personal friend, can I publish these messages to Edgar Allan Poe? Because Edgar Allan Poe would see them in the Portland transcript. It was a major literary paper at the time. And Isley was working with him and letting him publish these secret messages to Poe. The last one is a full poem. It's called On Time or something very similar. <clears throat> Matthew called it On Time. And you can look this up rather than trying to read it out here or look for it. Just, just look for Francis Quarles and the poem On Time. And it's a, it's a warning. It says, you'd better shape up because you're about to meet your maker. You know, death is mm -hmm. nigh. And Matthew would have meant it. In other words, this would have come at a time when Poe had refused. He'd said, no, I'm not going to tell anybody after all. I decided not to, which he knew all along. He probably wasn't going to do it. So now, Poe had, now Matthew had his answer. And his response, his last response, is this full-length poem by Francis Quarles that said, I wash my hands of this. You are now, is between you and God. And when you meet your maker, which is coming up soon, you have to deal with it. Mm. Well, I, I, this was not long before Poe died under mysterious circumstances. I think, I don't think it was a death threat. I think Poe took it as a death threat. Because he, he was not a religious man. He didn't believe in God. He didn't believe he was going to meet his maker or anything. But it looked like a death threat. Right. So I think he took it that way. And I think it preyed on his mind. And I think it could have contributed to his death if it preyed on his mind enough. <laughs> you, you read that poem. Anybody who's listening, go look it up online and read it. And you'll see what I'm talking about. Yeah, it was scary. If you're an atheist and you think that somebody hates you and is out to get you, it would scare the crap out of you. <laughs> you know? Because, because I mean, it, he knew he knew exactly who'd written it, and he knew exactly what it was about. You know, that's interesting. I, I, I can't imagine anybody being able to scare Poe. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> a sociopath still doesn't want to die. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Matthew had a lot of friends. <laughs> you know. Wow. And. and it's amazing, like, like you're saying, like, like all these other people ripped them off too, including Dickens. Yeah, A Christmas Carol. A Christmas Carol was his, and I've and I've written a I've written a paper about that too, and sent it to like 600 professors and hardly <clears throat> gotten any responses. <laughs> but they're on notice. Yeah, I've got I've got almost as much evidence for that one. And but that Matthew didn't write that on his own. That was co-authored with his wife Abby, who was also a child prodigy. Um. If you, uh, well, uh, she was plagiarized by her then classroom teacher, Albert Pike, who became famous on the basis of her poetry, much of which he modified. And then later on, his biographer asked him, you know, for, for some more recent pieces. And he said, well, I never was able to write like that again. <laughs> you know, <laughs> okay. uh, there's lots of there's lots of evidence. That's a whole other avenue. But she's the main author in there. And I can prove it. I've got some nice little smoking guns that that can prove that in my paper. Um, all of this is available on my website. If you get into my website and then you look at the articles tab, all those papers are in there. Wow. I can't believe Dickens would rob some, rip someone off like that. Well, you have a, to, a Christmas carol. I mean, you, have to, you have to get to know Dickens. See, people don't really understand what he was like, but it's coming out now. There's a fellow named John <laughs> Bowen, who is a, I think I have that right, John Bowen, who is a, uh, he's like an archivist. He's a professor, but he's really into archiving. He's not a Dickens fan per se, but he's big in the Dickens area because he's scrutinized all of these original documents and correspondence. Well, he got into a series of correspondence 
between two reporters who used to live next to Dickens' wife, Catherine, after they divorced. So one of the reporters knew her personally. And toward the end of her life, she started talking. Okay. And what she said was that Dickens had tried to have her committed to an insane asylum to get her out of the way because he had this long-term affair with this actress, Ellen Turner. And, and Catherine was in the way. Well, the first thing he did was to, to build a partition in the middle of the house, but then he wanted to have her committed to an insane asylum. He wasn't able to get away with it because she wasn't insane. And fortunately, the judge decided she wasn't insane, but he tried. And the other person that helped him was John Forster, his friend and the official Dickens biographer. So the two of them colluded to get her put away in this insane asylum. And those were not nice places at this time. We're talking 68 or something. I don't know, somewhere in there. Um, <laughs> and that means John Forster would have to have lied also in order to help bring this about. Now, John Forster and Dickens are the two people, the two only people, as far as I know, who tell us how Dickens wrote A Christmas Carol. And they tell us this very improbable story, which doesn't stand up to logistical scrutiny, that Dickens, in his spare time, would go for long walks at night on the streets of London, composing this story in a fit of inspiration. And he did it within six weeks. Well, it's impossible. <laughs> I mean, just just think about it. I mean, and I wrote I wrote somebody that lived in London, you know, and he says, well, it was dangerous. The streets of London at night, you know, it was barely mm -hmm. lit with lamps and it was dangerous. And the only people out were the, you know, the gamblers and the drunks and the prostitutes and so on. And besides, how are you going to write a story walking around in the middle of the night, you know, mm -hmm. um, and, and in his leisure time, no less. Well, it's obvious what happened. And, and I, that's a whole nother trail, see, but I could trace it. Uh, logistically, I can trace it all the way from Matthew and Abby all the way to Dickens. What he did is he took an existing manuscript and he dumbed it down spiritually, which I can also prove, because Abby was a, a mystic, deeply spiritual mystic who had studied Eastern and Western philosophy. And she embedded all that, all of that paranormal, all of the spirituality in A Christmas Carol was from her. Mm -hmm. the, the the puns and the jocular humor, that was Matthew. But all of the spirituality was Abby. And it's even in its watered down, this is a Christmas Carol light, what we've got. It's been watered down. Even that was powerful enough to, to move the world. If Abby's original, you know, if you could find Abby's original, it would be more powerful. Fortunately, I have a whole bunch of her short stories for comparison and Matthew's short stories. And there are very strong pre precursor works, you know, that are, that are Matthew's and Abby's. So, so, so is there anything that's out there that they've written under their names that's similar to the christmas carol yeah well out there means it was published at the time but yeah. not anything that we would run across today unless we specifically mm -hmm. look for it because the strongest one was plagiarized by somebody else <laughs> and that's another that's another long story but there was a guy named francis alexander duravage and his partner george pickering burnham apparently the second one had the money who tricked Matthew, as near as I can tell, into signing away the rights for his entire unpublished portfolio. And they, I think he would have agreed, okay, you can use a few, I'll, I'll choose a few that you can publish, 
when he needed cash. This is in 1848, but they tricked him with a small print and assigning away the rights to the whole thing. They published the entire thing. And one of these stories shows up in one of Francis Duravage's compilations toward the end. And it is point for point for point, obviously a precursor to A Christmas Carol. Hmm. But this portfolio goes all the way back to 1830. So very likely this was written before A Christmas Carol was published. Wow. Everybody's stealing from each other. Well, everybody stole from everybody, but not everybody was this good. I, I say it's like uh, leaving a Lamborghini with the keys in running in a bad neighborhood. Matthew did this over and over and over. It's going to get stolen. So it's not a coincidence at all. It's because Matthew was so good. And, you know, I write pretty well. I don't have that talent now. But he was so good that that people were more likely to steal his work than anybody else's, especially because he wouldn't come out and defend himself. You know, he, he couldn't because he was involved with a whole bunch of people connected with the Underground Railroad. Mm -hmm. If he came out publicly, they'd start tracing his connections and they'd trace it back and there would have been a lot of people killed. You know, yeah. he couldn't do it. Wow. Except, did, did, except. Did, he, did he ever put any bait out there for them to take? Like, not like, that I know. That's like if, I knew, if, thought, I knew, but... if I knew like where people were stealing my stuff, I would have put out some bait. Well, but he couldn't. He couldn't collect on it. No, but but just to see who steals it. I I don't know. Not I don't think so. But here's what he did. He he must have threatened Edgar Allan Poe. If you ever publish the Raven, I don't care what happens. I will I will expose you. Not Annabelle Lee. I mean, not the mm. Raven. If if you ever print Annabelle Lee, I will come after you, because if I'm correct. Edgar Allan Poe had Annabelle Lee from 1842, the first half of 1842, and it was never published his whole lifetime. It got published after he died. And that's why. Now, there is a story about how he wrote Annabelle Lee, but it makes no sense. One of his two best poems, and he never published it, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, supposedly it's because he, he wrote it like right before he died. No, he had it from 1842. And Matthew said, if you publish this one, I will expose you. No questions. You know, and he didn't dare do it. And the reason is that it's deeply personal. It was written in grief. It has that kind of dissociated fantasy feel to it. You know, that like, in other words, he was in deep grief and he wrote about it as though it was a fairy tale because that was the only way emotionally he could handle it. But it has a nice little smoking gun in it. Mm -hmm. And that is that if you read Annabelle Lee, it talks about how his wife's uh, high-born kinsman came and took her away. That was literal for Matthew Franklin Whittier. That literally happened because Abby's father was a marquee. Her family was aristocracy. And I can prove that two of her sisters came and took her back to their family home about a, a week or five or six days before she died. Hmm. So that reference in Annabelle Lee is autobiographical for Matthew, like so much of his other works. Incredible. You know, it's that's, that's pretty too, good evidence. Yeah, it is. It's pretty good evidence. And it's too specific. And then if you look at all of Matthew's other work and see that it's all autobiographical. Like I said, he takes these things into Photoshop and puts the filters on them. But basically, it's his life. Mm -hmm. So this poem, Annabelle Lee, it was originally to Ab Abigail P. P with a line, just like Quarles, blank Quarles. I think I don't know this. I can't prove this, but I know it internally. That was written to Abigail P. Now, there's one other little clue that I haven't talked about. We have time? Yeah. Okay. So in August of 1853, 
in Waverly Magazine, which was not my, one of Matthew's regulars, but this was in Boston, so he would have read it. There developed an argument between several people about whether Edgar Allan Poe had plagiarized his friend, Thomas Chivers, to write The Raven. And the reason is that back in, I think, the end of 42 or 43, Thomas Chivers had written a poem in memory of his three-year-old daughter. And it uses a phrase like nevermore or something very similar to The Raven. And so people think that, well, Poe had to have stolen those elements you know, from Thomas Chivers. So there's an argument going on. Now, one of the writers, historians think was actually Chivers. I don't agree. I think it was somebody else. But at any rate, <clears throat> Matthew shows up with guess what signature? Quail. You remember? The star. Star. Okay. He shows up with the star in 1853. This is two years after Margaret, three years after Margaret Fuller died. So it's not Margaret Fuller. Okay. This is Matthew showing up in the middle of the argument with the star. And he calls Poe a mockingbird, meaning an imitator. And he says P loved the mockingbirds because they didn't always sing the same song. P is for Poyan. That's Abby's maiden initial. It's not for Poe because Abby loved the mockingbird. She wrote a poem, Ode to the Mockingbird, which Albert Pike stole. <laughs> but that's her poem. So it's a specific reference to her poem, Ode to the Mockingbird, and her love of birds and songbirds. She was a musical prodigy. See, so she loved songbirds and sang and so forth. So and, and she liked to improvise. See, so he says, P always loved the mockingbirds, says, but then not everybody can write in different styles like that. He doesn't mean Edgar Allan Poe. He's already said he's an imitator. He means Abby could write in different styles. Okay. And then it goes, it goes on like that. At the end, he talks about how original he is and how he's going to do something totally original. It's going to blow all the rest of them out of the water. He means that he was the original author of the Raven. That's what that means. So there, there's no question about who the author is here. That's Matthew signing his, his star and his code mm -hmm. is pretty, pretty clear what he's trying to tell these people. Wow. Um, and so, I don't think I've hit them all yet. So how about now? Um, if you are, are, are his re, Matthew's reincarnation, how is your writing now? Pretty darn good. I've been writing a blog uh, for years. Uh, I mean, it goes back to like 2000 or something. But in the last several years, I've been writing every single day. And these are like pretty intricate essays every single day. I mean, I could, I could just do it in my sleep, basically, with my eyes closed. I could sit down and write a really in-depth, interesting you know, blog entry, we're talking a long blog entry with all kinds of clever humor and everything else every day if I want to. Lately, I've been doing video blogs, so I haven't been doing so many written ones. And we're talking for a very small audience, you know, I don't know, eight or nine or something, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, 10 people, you know, but I just love to write. So yeah, I've got that. Now, recently, uh, Abby's anniversary came up on June 2nd, and I wrote a poem for her, but it's very personal, but it's pretty good. I mean, I can still write poetry. I don't know anything about it. I don't know any of the rules. But if I have to, and it's like pulling teeth, but if I could force myself, I could sit down and write a pretty good poem. Um, and I think it was that way for Matthew, too. He didn't consider himself primarily a poet. And I think it was tough for him to write poetry. He was very good, but I don't think it was easy. He had to force himself. And see, his older brother was a famous poet. So you have this big brother, little brother syndrome where Matthew's 
self-image was very low. He didn't want to, didn't feel like he could compete with his famous big brother. The irony of this is that his poem, The Raven, is more famous than anything John Greenleaf Whittier did. Do you know right off the top of your head what John Greenleaf Whittier's flagship famous poem is? No, I don't. Okay, well, most people probably won't. It's Snowbound, which everybody would have known back in the day, but nowadays everybody's forgotten it because it's a very sentimental poem about the family, the Whittier family, you know, uh, snowed in and that kind of thing. Nobody's everybody knows what the Raven is, you know. <laughs> so mm -hmm. Matthew ended up being more famous. His poem ended up being more famous. But I can do that. I also said, I wonder if I could write in his short story style. And I sat down and did it. And I think it's pretty darn successful. I've got it in the back with a whole bunch of Matthew's pieces in my sequel, in my second ebook. And so I can do it. Again, if I sit down and kind of make myself do it, I can do it. But I, Matthew was like, I had a friend years ago, uh, was a typesetter, and, a, and a, he was my employer, and then he became my friend. And he had the kind of mind that would just spin off new ideas, bang, 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 bang. And some of them might be usable, and some of them might not. But he just had that ability. He was tapped into something. And he would just come up with brand new ideas like, like that. Matthew was like that. He was a font of creativity, you know. Um, and I don't have that. You know, I mean, he literally for the carpet bag in 1851-52, Matthew was a silent financial partner in the carpet bag, which was a humorous newspaper, kind of patterned after punch. And Matthew, I've determined, he wrote under all different pseudonyms, but he he wrote as many as eight different pieces under different pseudonyms with different characters for for each weekly edition of that paper. <laughs> you know, that's how that's how much raw creativity he had. I don't have that anymore. I, I can uh, do it. If I, if I sit down and make myself, I can rise to that level. That's basically where I'm at. Kind of like I'm a Roger Federer fan and I'm cringing watching Roger, Roger Federer try to come back from like, you know, two knee surgeries and a year plus of being out, you know, and that's, that's like me, <laughs> you know, he's struggling. He, he can play pretty well, but it's not the brilliant mm -hmm. Roger Federer we had before. That's kind of the way I am now compared to Matthew. Wow. Um, but so, so you, you have also written a book addressing reincarnation. Um, yes. They, they call, it's called reincarnation can be proved. Right. Um, one of the things that has convinced me about reincarnation actually is I, I forget what the movie was called, but it was about, um, these Buddhist monks looking for a reincarnation of some some right, teacher, yes. and they're they're traveling, you know, through Tibet, you know, talking to these different children, and they take out all these objects that own that the original person owned, and they have you know, mixed with ones that are not right ones, and then the child has to pick the right ones, right, to prove that they're the reincarnation of of this specific teacher. Yeah, yeah, and um, and it's real accurate. <laughs> like, like as soon as they find these children and take them back to wherever they um, were teaching or whatever, like like their memories sort of start coming back. Yeah, Ian Stevenson did something real similar with children in India, and you know they recognized things too. They they went back to where they used to live, and they they'd even try to fool them. The people would try to fool the kid, and the kid would say, "No, it's this way," you know. And they would get to the house, and, and one of them said, "My name is scratched on the back of the door." And they look, and there's the name scratched, you know, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so I mean, I tried to do similar things, and what, like I said, there were there were certain flashbacks and 
and experiences in uh, hypnosis that I was able to prove absolutely from the historical record. But as far as going places, I didn't do that until I managed to move up to New England, to Portland, Maine here about three years ago. And that's what starts out my second book, my sequel is, you know, what happened when I did that? And I would say the results were kind of mixed, partly because what I determined is it has to be exactly the same. You know, if it's been modified too much, it's not going to happen. And secondly, there has to be very strong emotion attached to it. So if you have those two factors, then you can you can get a flashback. Doesn't mean you're going to, but you can. If those two factors are missing, it's not going to happen. So I had some experiences, but nothing that really knocked your socks off. You know, when I was driving around Portland very early, a downtown, suddenly right in front of me is the first parish church. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I know that. You know, well, it's like the only thing that's left <laughs> that looks the same <laughs> because there was a big fire in 1866 that wiped everything out. So everything's changed except that big old stone church survived and that and I felt it. But, you know, I don't have any way to prove that because I already knew what it was and seen pictures and stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, then when I saw the Portland head light, that's the iconic lighthouse that everybody associates with Portland, Maine, even though technically it's in Cape Elizabeth. <clears throat> When I went there, I didn't get much of a hit off the lighthouse. But when I walked about, oh, I don't know, 100 feet or a couple hundred feet down from the lighthouse and looked out over the bay that where the, the river's coming in, right? And I looked out over it, and suddenly I got a flashback. And what I remembered was two things. First off, I was with Abby. She was next to me. She was very petite. So she's next to me. And one of the things she, apparently we had these little sayings. And one of the things she would say is, I am small and you are tall. Well, Matthew was like 6'2 and she was petite. But what she meant was that spiritually she was humble and he was, you know, a, a go-getter, you know. So, <laughs> you know, so it was kind of symbolic. Uh -huh. So I remembered that and I remembered us looking at Then I remembered uh, apparently she was dying and we knew she was dying because I remember looking at a big rock that was kind of in the shore, maybe off the shore, maybe like 20 feet off the shore. And I remembered that she had told me if you can be like that rock, we will be together again someday. You know, and I rem and but now now the scene shifts and it's after she's died and I'm standing there and I'm staring at that rock and I say, I am going to be that rock, you know, in mm -hmm. grief, saying I am going to be that rock. I will be with her again just to hang on kind of, you know, so I have both memories like with her and then after she died. But there's no way to prove that it's not in any letters. It's not in any diaries. You know, now Matthew had a diary, but it hadn't been found, so could be in it. I made a dutiful note of it, you know, but that's a case of a memory that just can't be proven. You know, I don't know. And there were other things like that. I went to where Matthew worked in Boston, the Boston right. Custom House, which you, if you watch the news, you'll see this thing with a clock tower on it, you know, over the person's shoulder. That's the Boston Custom House. I see it on the news, but that tower wasn't built back then. It was just the thing down at the bottom that has the columns and stuff. And um, I went there and I kind of sort of felt like I remembered it. I had certain like ideas or flashbacks about what Matthew used to do. I felt like he was a, like up on the second floor. There's a rotunda and looking over, he was afraid of falling in like he was afraid of heights, but not really anything strong enough to say, oh, I definitely that's definitely a past life memory. But there's no strong emotion attached to it. You know, I went there to work every day and I came home and I went to work. And I came home, but there's not like any tremendously strong emotion except one thing. And that was that I was walking down the stairs. I looked up and there's a kind of a balustrade. I think you'd call it. There's a, there's wood that curves that's up on the roof of the ceiling. 
And it looks kind of like a grand piano. You know, it has that S curve to it. And I remembered, now this is, this came to me. I don't know if it's real or not, but I, I remembered looking at that and then the granite that it's up against and thinking the curved wood makes me think of Abby's grand piano and the, the granite makes me think of her tomb, you know, and the con and the contrast of those two things hit him and would continue to hit him every time he'd walk down those stairs. He'd think of that. Hmm. Well, I, I can't prove that that was there. I can prove that there was a lot of wood in the custom house, even though there's one historical reference that says they didn't have much wood because they're afraid of fire. I found a photograph of two men standing in the collections department and it's all wood. You know, the whole thing. So historically, I can prove that they did have a lot of wood around, you know, um, but I can't prove that. And then I went to where he died, which was in Maverick Square in Boston. It used to be called, it used to be the Maverick House Hotel, I think, Maverick Hotel. And now there's a health center that's about the same dimensions, built right smack on the same spot, four stories, I think it is. And as I was walking there, I got a sense of my stomach being a little bit heavy. But like many years earlier, when I had a hypnotic regression, I'd forgotten about it, but I remember dying with a terrible, sharp pain in my stomach, like an ulcer, you know, so that kind of came back a little bit. And then when I got there, I went in, I went up to the fourth floor, I saw the little museum with the displays and a piece of the, you know, a piece of the building and everything. And I didn't get anything, you know, didn't have any feelings about it at all. And the reason is it doesn't look like it. It's not the same building anymore. See, so photographs aren't enough. I look at the photograph, I kind of sort of feel something. So it was very unsatisfying that the attempt to come back to places, you know, that I'd been associated with, because most of it's gone. There's one right near where I live, and I can't prove this either. But on my daily, not every other day walk, there's a hill, and it leads from the city of Portland out into Westbrook. And I had a flash, and that was that Abby and I would take that route out to the country, like on a day's picnic. And going up that hill, Matthew and Abby would jump out to, to make it easier for the horse to pull the carriage up. Apparently, maybe it was too big for the one horse or whatever it was. You know, they would jump in. Matthew was very kind to animals and horses in particular. So that's typical for him. And so was Abby. So they would, but it was a little tricky jumping out of the thing. And Abby was kind of nervous about it. So they would joke about it. And Matthew would joke about it. You know, here it comes, you know, he'd make a big deal about it to try to kind of, you know, make her not worry about it so much, you know, and it was like a joke. It was a private joke between them. And just seeing the shape of that hill that came back to me in a flash. And uh, and that's it. And I can't prove it. I have no hmm. way to prove that it's not in any diaries or letters or anything. See, but it's plausible. I look at the route. I think I know where they lived. That's where the purple curtains originally were used to cover the wall, you know. There's a there's a house I think is left over that didn't get touched by the fire. I think that's where they lived. It's on Pleasant Street and uh, it's, it's right near Pleasant and Park Streets. And it's a direct route, more or less, you know, up that road, which is Brighton Avenue uh, to that hill. So it's, it's entirely plausible. But this is the way with, I don't know, I counted 90 memories like this in my first book. There's, there's out of 90 of them, maybe 70 of them are to a level of being plausible, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I just report it like it is, except that here's the thing. If you were to try to come up with 90 fake memories about the 19th century, I bet a bunch of them would be impossible. If you didn't, if you hadn't studied the 19th century, you might say, well, you know, she wore 
bloomers. It was 1930 and she wore bloomers and she wore a, a wide brimmed hat like a sombrero and she was a, worked as a reporter. All of that's impossible <laughs> because women didn't wear bloomers until 1850 and they all wore bonnets and there were no women reporters. Mm-hmm. You know, so you would if you if you came up with 90 supposed memories, a bunch of them would be wrong like that. Mine weren't wrong. None of mine were wrong. <laughs> you know, they were all at least plausible. So plausible doesn't sound like much. But when you get a whole bunch of them and none of them are wrong, plausible has its own weight. Yeah. Why do you think people forget their past lives? Well, they don't actually. They only there's only one kind of memory that's lost. First of all, then there's a reason for that. <clears throat> Excuse me, get a sip of water here. Um, what's retained is what I call the higher mind, and I've proven this because I can take pieces I wrote before I studied Matthew Franklin Whittier's writings, and I can take his writings and compare them, and I can compare them for humor, uh, for values, for attitudes, for the creative process. It all matches perfectly. I have the same higher mind that Matthew had. And you can see it in my in my beliefs, in my spirituality, in the way my mind works, and in my interest in, you know, metaphysics, uh, the whole thing. You know, Matthew was a spiritualist who, with a small committee, studied physical mediumship and signed underneath testifying that he had seen certain things happen in the seance. He was, in 1855, he was a paranormal researcher. <laughs> and I am a paranormal researcher. You know what I'm saying? He, uh, he reported on talks, on Lyceum talks. I used to videotape talks. You know? So, I mean, I'm the same person on that level. Then, emotionally, I have concluded that all emotions come straight through. That what you're experiencing now, that you think are your present life emotions, are actually your past life emotions. Everybody is reacting to current life situations and people with their past life emotions. And this is, for example, I think why somebody can't leave an abuser. Because in the past life, when they loved this person, that person had everything they wanted and wasn't abusive. So that's what they emotionally remember. When they say this is he's really a good person, they're remembering that lifetime when he had everything he wanted. Now things are a little bit tougher and he's getting nasty. And but what they love is the person they emotionally remember from the past. That's just one example of many. So emotions are the same. The physical body is similar. If you look at my book, the cover of my book, Reincarnation Can Be Proven, you will yeah, see. Yeah, it's definitely close. It's pretty close, right? Now, there's a, my friend Jeff Keen is even closer. He's so close that somebody has overlaid, you know, the two and compared, you know, and it's almost like 100% match. I'm pretty close. My nose is a little different. And I think there's a reason for that. I don't think I like my nose and I got to have one I like better in this life, you know, but basically it's pretty darn close. The, I think more often than not, it's not a hundred percent, but more often than not, the person is going to look at least 85% similar, you know? And now I, I want to point out that uh, Walter Simcue has made a big deal about this. I came out with Jeff and my website way before, or before Walter Simcue published that photograph and others. So I was first. So anyway, you're going to look pretty similar, 85%, 90, 95% similar. But what's different is the physical personality and the memory, which means that I don't have Matthew's associations. I didn't have his childhood. I didn't grow up in the 19th century. You know, when I look at something, I associate primarily to everything I know from this life all the way back to childhood. I don't associate to everything back to his, unless I was under deep, deep hypnosis, which apparently puts the mind to sleep while the consciousness is still awake. And then those things start to come in. 
So I have a totally different brain, you know, and the, the reason is that you need a fresh start, basically. <clears throat> Morality requires a couple things. It requires that we take this world and our bodies seriously. It's like a, a virtual, it's like a game. It's like a virtual life, but we have to believe in the characters, you know, to get into it. We have to totally, because in order to make moral choices, we have to believe it's real. If we knew it wasn't real, then the moral choices wouldn't make any difference. And this may be part of what a sociopath is. A sociopath is somebody who has woken up to this truth before they have the spiritual maturity to be compassionate. They deep down, they know this isn't real. I could do any damn thing I want to, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, but they don't have compassion. Their heart isn't awakened. So what, what they do and anything they want to is totally self-centered, see? But they have a piece of the puzzle, I think. They have some legitimate realization and that is that you know this is just a game <laughs> so it's all a game to them see? so you have to take it seriously and you can't remember your past what you get is intuition that's allowed so you have the feeling oh been there done that got burned got the shirt don't want to do that again you know i've always had that feeling about alcohol i've never been interested in alcohol in this life i didn't like the high i didn't i didn't like it you know well matthew had problems with alcohol so I think I learned, learned my lessons. Eh? So you get intuition, but you don't get any past life memories because it would be like an open book test. It would be cheating. And we're here being tested, you know, and, and learning. So you can't fairly take the test unless, A, you take it seriously. Because the kid that goes to school whose father's supporting him and says, I don't give a shit whether I pass a test or not. That's, that's you know, that's not working. You know, you have to take it seriously. So you have to... At, until a certain stage, you have to believe I am this body. This is serious shit. I have got to to succeed at this test. You know, so you have to believe in it and you can't remember your past life mistakes. It'd be too easy. That's that's my answer to that. Interesting. Wow. I guess I sort of I sort of fall into the almost like sociopath category. Well, I mean, here's the thing. I mean, if you wake up to the fact that this is a dream and my spiritual Master Meher Baba says, this is a dream. This isn't real. <laughs> you know, yeah. It may look real to you, but this is a dream. If you have the necessary development and you come to that realization, then you try to help people out of the dream, <laughs> you know, which is what I'm doing. I'm trying to wake people up, you yeah. know, to starting with reincarnation. And then, of course, there's a whole bunch more. But because people are so stuck on reincarnation, let's start with the ABCs. Let's at least get reincarnation in here so they know that they've been a lot of different lifetimes. Like, for example, I mean, I identify more with Matthew physically than I do with this incarnation. I've never known what this face was about, you know, or what this life was about. But when I found Matthew, I said, that's me. <laughs> you know? So when, when you get when you understand reincarnation, it loosens up your identification with any given lifetime. See, mm -hmm. it's a start. Yeah, it's a start. So that's what I'm focusing on is trying to help get people out of this stuck place. Our yeah. Western society. Yeah, I'll say me, too. Yeah, that's why I do this podcast. I just throw tons and tons of different information at people and. Oops, some of it helps. <laughs> well, it, yeah, it, it loosens up the status quo and the assumption that, that we all know what this is about. It's about, uh, you know, the guy that dies with the most toys wins. That's what it's about. You know, you're, you're loosening that up, which is a service. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you for taking the time to be on today. This is really interesting. Thank you for giving me all that time to talk about my favorite subjects. It's awesome. I, I didn't feel rushed at all with this. It's great. 
No, yeah, that's why I like the longer format. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, where can my listeners find you? Well, the website is www.ial, which stands for In Another Life. So www.ial.goldthread.com. And everything's very easily discovered from that point. All right. Well, I will post a link to that in the notes to this awesome. episode so my listeners can check it out while they're listening. And again, thank you for being on today. Thank you, Gary. All right. Hang on one second. I'm just going to play the outro. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you loved what you listened to, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe.